Hello, this is David Thompson coming to you from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia with a message for all those that are hungry and thirsty for reality, for ultimate meaning and destiny in your lives. What am I speaking about for those that are new? The very reason for which you were created. The very reason for which all things exist and consist. What is it? It is love. I am talking about the one true God who is love. It is love that is the very source of all reality. It is love that is the reason for all things. That is found in the one true eternal God. This love always chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice. Obviously, any lesser choice would have a measure of corruption in it. This love is so pure, it is so integral, that as it were, it is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to love. This love will not control, condone the slightest that is contrary to love. It is the opposite of corruption. In fact, it is the very destroyer of corruption. And that is why it is the very source of reality. Because what is reality? Well, if you look up in dictionaries, the word truth is basically defined as reality or that which is real. And reality is defined basically as that which is indestructible, unmovable, unshakable, absolute. Only this quality could be that. It is the destroyer of corruption. Goodness is corrupted by our own free will, making choices against this ultimate reality. What ensures that there is goodness without corruption that can go on forever is this quality of love that is so pure and integrous. Well, that's the first aspect of this love, which can be likened to the negative symbol in electronics and math, and which is, of course, the negatives and positives are in everything that is created. So the negative symbol represents an indestructible foundation from which can spring forth creativity without corruption that can ever enlarge in creativity without end. It also represents the cutting off of all corruption. But from that negative symbol is formed the positive symbol in math or electronics or in nature, or the symbol of the cross as we know it. In fact, in the most ancient languages, Back 1500, 2000 BC, you got the Phoenicians, you got many other people in the Mideast there and the Hebrew language all had the last letter as the symbol of the cross just as we draw it today. What does that represent? It represents that God's love is so great that he could come down to this little speck of a planet in the midst of such a vast, large universe and not only communicate with his creation, after all, he created all things, 
Therefore, he should be able to communicate with his creation even in human form since we are human beings. But also, he came in Jesus Christ and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature on the cross, and suffered more than you, whatever you've been through in your life, suffered more, greater humiliation and suffering than you so that you could choose to be forgiven. He became a perfect atoning substitutionary sacrifice for your sins. Your choice is against this ultimate reality. You see, the dilemma is that when you create beings, you want to create beings that have the capacity to love. For there's no fulfillment, and where, where there's no love, there's emptiness, there's no fulfillment, there's no meaning, there's no creativity. But when you have beings that have the capacity to love, well, that means they also have the potential to make choices that are destructive, that are hell contagious, that are contrary to good. God's purpose is through his wisdom to bring our free will into conformity to his. It is only beings that are the source of their own action, that have their own free will, that have the capacity to love. And that makes them also self-responsible. Therefore, you cannot blame the devil or anyone or blame God for creating the devil because we are the source of our own actions. We create our own choices. Therefore, we are responsible for our own choices. But the good news is that God's love is so great that he, through Jesus Christ, became a perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross. There is no love that can be imagined that is greater than this love or that could exist that is greater than this love. Only this love that I've described in these two aspects, the integrity of his love and the mercy of his love, to die on the cross for your sins and rise again, only these two could be trusted, these two aspects of love in their perfection could be entrusted with unlimited life and power and authority without being corrupted by it or using it in a corrupt way, and this indicates that he is the very source. So this is the only quality that could possibly be the one true eternal God. And yes, the one true eternal God is in three personages as well, because he must rule in the three ultimate aspects of existence. And if you are not in personage, in and over whatever that aspect of existence is, you cannot be ruling in and over. And so God is in three personages as the Father beyond creation, separate and above creation, seeing the end from the beginning as the Son. The Son is the full expression of the being of the Father as described in Hebrews 1.3. The word Son basically means expression or word. Yes, Jesus Christ is called the Word of God and Jesus Christ is called the one and only begotten Son of God. And so you have the Father beyond creation, the Son 
in the creation realm, communicating in a limited level with the creation and experience, to experience it and so on with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And then you have the Holy Spirit and the other third ultimate aspect of existence, which is omnipresence, attached to every particle that he's created, every particle of existence. And I could talk a long time about all of these things, but I'm not here to do that. I'm here to give a message. But for those that are new, I'm basically introducing who the one true God could only possibly be. Yes, he would have to be in three personages and yet one God, not three gods. One God in personage in the three ultimate aspects of existence. Now, for you that are new, I want you to know that you can go to my website at ultimatemeaning.com where there's a flip book that you can read and a lot of the print is highlighted in red and those are links to very profound and amazing YouTube videos from many fields of science and archaeology that highly confirm the reality of what I am sharing here and there's also many videos that I have created there many of them are my own self speaking on this topic in far more greater depth and I'm against the evidence the overwhelming evidence that evolution is a mastery of deception and lies, which has been exposed as never before to be the case. You can check that all out there, and there's even a link to GenesisScienceNetwork.com, which has 24-7 documentaries that are very interesting. Uh, from every field of science that is exposed as never before the absolute folly of the theory of evolution and reveals that this world is not billions or millions of years old. It's only in the thousands, probably the most 10,000 years old, from many other young Earth indicators that are based in far less presumption than the methods used for dating. So check it all out and you will be totally aware of how much you've been lied to. When you go to Genesis Science Network or you look at that flip book I have there, oh, I know this is a long introduction for those that are new. And now I want to introduce myself to those that have come to know the one true God for whom to know is life eternal and yet are new to these messages. I seek to speak these messages as it says in 1 Peter 4.11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We are to seek to allow God by his spirit to speak through us. When we're gathered together or doing such as I am, seeking to minister to fellow believers that have come to know the one true eternal God. And so I will seek to allow God by his spirit to speak through me. It says in Revelations 19.10, Worship God. <clears throat> For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, when one worships God out of great reverence and awe, with great thankfulness and humility and praise, if you know God, you've come to know the one true eternal God, then you are filled with his spirit in an overflow beyond yourself that can result in creative utterances coming from the spirit of God. That is the way the early church always ministered to one another. And God wants it to be returned 
in a greater fullness in these last days. In fact, it is totally lacking in the typical charismatic Pentecostal or evangelical church. Totally lacking. Yet this was common in the early church. People gathered together and they had total freedom to move in the gifts of the Spirit. It wasn't chaos. There was order, but there was an understanding of allowing God by His Spirit to have full liberty to move through each member of the body. You don't have to go up to the front and ask permission to use a mic. If the Spirit of God moves on you, you speak it out as the Spirit leads you. There's an appointed time when everyone is led to do that. Usually after some period of time and much prayer, individually and corporately, and then maybe worship and song and praise, and out of that comes the spirit of worship and the spirit of prophecy, which is speaking as the oracles of God. It can come forth as a testimony, as a word of encouragement or exhortation, or as a prophetic word. But it should be the common practice in the body of Christ among each member. They should be facilitated to move in the gifts of the Spirit. And to be sensitive to only speak as God leads. And there'll be a mess here and a mess there. A little bit. But it will all be tuned and come into a beautiful smorgasbord instead of just one message from the pastor. In fact, in the meetings that I went to in a church years back here, they were very sensitive that way and had that liberty. And many, many times people would speak and they didn't know what they were going to share. They were just letting the Spirit move through them, and it all fit together as a theme. And then on top of that, the pastor didn't know what they were going to share, and his message happened to be in what they were going to share, and this happened over and over. So what I do to facilitate speaking prophetically as the oracles of God, because this message is a message for the churches at this particular hour and time, I am seeking to speak. What the Spirit is saying to the churches on this particular week, right now it is July the 29th of 2023 on Saturday at about, well, right now it's 3.46 in the afternoon. It says in Matthew 25, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Doing what? It says, ministering to the sheep their meat in due season. And yet, how many pastors are doing this? What I do to facilitate this is I cast lots in great reverence before God. I'm not going to go into the details of how I do that. With two independent random applications on the internet to get the possibility of any two chapters before God, that those two chapters might bear witness with one another as to the message and the theme that God would be speaking by a spirit. And then I meditate on those chapters for only a half an hour and cut and paste any notes within that half an hour. And then I usually speak immediately after. And that's what ha is happening today, except that since the videos take a lot of work and time, I'm going to be touching on all the messages I receive from Monday until today on Saturday so that you will know what God is saying at this particular time to the body of Christ. Nothing is prepared here I'm speaking from my heart. I am allowing God, by his Spirit, to speak what he is wanting to say to the body of Christ at this particular time. 
I also cast lots to receive a worship song, and I'm very fussy about the worship song. They have to have depth and meaning in the words and beautiful music, often accompanied with violin and flute and trumpet and many other things. I have now almost 150 worship songs that you can find on my website at loverealize.com and even at ultimatemeaning.com, which you can play on an overhead projector if you're connected to the internet because they're YouTube videos which all have the words displayed with a beautiful background or a blank background, whatever. So I cast lots out of the choice of 1,257 songs that I know are high quality. And then I looked them up to see if I can find a good one to put up that will work on YouTube. So that's what I've done today. And so the song that was received by the casting of Lot today will now be brought forth. And there are many of these that come out of a book called, um, well, it's Living Stream Ministry, I believe it's called. Yeah, Living Stream Ministry. They have a 1,080 hymns in here, and then I have another 177 on my computer, so I put them all together, 1,257 choices. So today, we're going to play the song that I received, because that's the one God wanted. And I will minimize myself here in a moment as we begin to play the song. Now, this is a common, well-known song with a different tune. Just As I Am is the song. It's in that book, 1048. So here we go. We'll begin playing it, and I'll minimize myself in a moment here.
just as I come. Yes, we're coming with a heart in our weakness, tossed with fears many times and our own frailty. But if we come and we bring our weaknesses to him, his strength is made perfect in our weakness, brothers and sisters. It is made perfect in our weakness. I'm just going to make sure things are working here. Great. That's a wonderful song. And I see really how it will be an encouragement in relation to the message that I'm sharing. Because there is a very clear overarching theme throughout this week by the casting of Lot as to what God is saying to the churches throughout United States and Canada and Canada in this hour and around the world. In this hour of great crisis where things are more and more coming to a climax, a point of either breakthrough or of greater oppression. And so I want to share with you what I have received from the Word of God this week. And I'm trusting God by His Spirit to speak. So I'm going to bring up a passage of scriptures to, on Monday and so on, what I received. But I think I'll just touch on what I received today first a bit, just briefly. So today I received Matthew 28 and Judges 5, and the common theme between these two chapters is victory over the captivity of the fear of death and of death itself through Jesus Christ. And we'll go into that a bit later, but I want to go back to Monday and just touch on these various chapters and let God lead by his Spirit. I hardly remember everything myself that I received. So I say here, the two things common in both these chapters on Monday was Exodus 7 and 1 John 2. Now in Exodus 7, Moses is standing before Pharaoh with the rods. And they become a serpent before Pharaoh. And the magicians are also able to do the same thing. But Moses' rod swallows up what the magicians also were able to do, which was lying signs and wonders, which is something that will be very prevalent in the last days, as is described by Jesus Christ, for example, in Matthew 24, and obviously in the book of Revelation, where you have the false prophet calling fire down from heaven and doing many lying signs and wonders with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that do not want to choose to believe in the truth. And this is really something I observe. The evidence of the soon return of Christ is very much increasing. But how is it increasing? One way it is increasing is by the amazing discoveries in science, which are totally destroying the theory of evolution. In fact, it is totally. You can say the science that has come out against evolution has totally put evolution 
in the category of pseudoscience and of complete, of complete mastery of deception. I mean, I can't go into all of this, but for example, there's the large JW telescope, the James Webb telescope, a hundred times more powerful than the Hubble, and now what they've seen has blown them away. It's destroyed all 16 points of the Big Bang Theory, and now they don't believe in the Big Bang Theory anymore, the top proponents of it. Oh, there's some that might be cleaving with, it's scratching with their fingernails, so they're just sliding off the cliff, so to speak. That's where that's at. What they discovered in the genes through the Y chromosome that man only goes back 6,000 years. And oh yeah, they're scratching with their fingernails. But the evidence is very strongly confirmed as never before. This is one of the strongest evidences is what they found in the Y chromosome and how it's being confirmed in different things they're discovering that confirm it through archaeology and things in history. They've uncovered the Indian civilization in North America. They know it. The Indians came here around 900 AD, not that long ago. Huh. They know a lot about their history now because of all they're discovering in that area. So as the evidence increases and increases in many fields of science, like maybe I should mention this for interest too. I was looking at a video, I put it even up on Facebook and on my website at ultimatemeaning.com. It's one of the videos up there now. And it shows what's in these genes. Little things that are like robots that look like human beings. They got two arms and two legs. They pick up a big bunch of material. They put specific addresses on it and go to a specific place in the cell to deliver it to other places that take it and begin to create from the information whatever is needed to be created to keep the human body or to create another human body, etc. And these little machines are so complex that if they have an obstacle in their way, they know how to go around it, create another path in front of them. And it's just the speed they do this at, walking, carrying these heavy loads, if they were our size, they would be going at a speed of 2,000 miles an hour. That's how fast they walk with their two legs. This is all happening in your cells. And they do all kinds of detail work, repairing things that, in detail. And oh. I mean, these, this machinery man doesn't even come close to it. AI doesn't come close to it. But you see, the more this comes, and people ignore this, the more the Lord is soon returning to the point that the evidence will be so great that Christ himself will appear in the heavens and the whole earth will see him actually returning from outer space. And they will cry for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and to hide from the face of him that sits on the throne as is described in the book of Revelation and in other places in Isaiah. I think around Isaiah 26. I won't go into all of that. It talks about the Passover there the second Passover, where the Lord is going to pass over the face of the earth and punish the world for their iniquity. And he says to God's people, hide yourself in your chambers that, that as this wrath passes over, 
you're in that place of humility with me and you do not receive any, let's say, side effects from that. Terrible judgment that will fall on the wicked in the last days. It's a second Passover that is described as the Lord returns to the earth. And it says that the earth will no longer hide those that are dead. It will disclose their blood. And we know in Revelations that they're going to try to kill themselves and commit suicides. And it says that death will flee from them because there is a far superior dimension that will merge with this very inferior third dimension. And I have written a book called Afterlife Incredible Irrefutable. It's 368 pages, a large six by nine paperback. You can get it on your phone. And it goes into discussing what science describes as these superior dimensions and of how people, when they die, do go into a dimension that is far, 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 far superior and more, 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 way more real than this physical realm. For those that have been open and hungry and willing to be open to the truth of who Jesus Christ is and to receive him, those that die and have been apathetic towards the truth often don't even have sight. Those that have sight in that realm are those that aren't those type of people. I observe that. Some of the ones that don't have the truth, that realm is hardly any more real than this realm. But those that do, or even those that have been open to the truth, or became open to the truth, they see 360 degrees. They can see 10 miles away in detail. They can go, they can see their dead bodies while the doctors are operating on them and see what's behind their dead bodies and look inside their dead bodies. They can see in such amazing ways. And their intellect is so great they can just absorb full dictionaries in a few seconds. I can't go into that. That's all in my book. All the evidence is overwhelming. How many people hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people tell the doctors when, they didn't, when the doctors knew they were dead details of what they were doing, what they were saying, which is impossible and it repeats itself. It's the most empirical scientific evidence there is of life after death. So don't tell me about your deceiving lies. If you want to believe in a lie and a ridiculous fable that you came out of nothing, when there's such intricacy and complex, complexity and design beyond anything man can do. You're just hardening your heart to the truth. And so here in this chapter of Exodus, Pharaoh hardened his heart after those rods were cast before Pharaoh. He hardened his heart against God because Israel provided him and his people the temporal pleasures of this world. He did not want to let go of these slaves that were enriching his people and allowing them to have and live a high life. They didn't care about so much the other realm. Yeah, they had their appearments on the afterlife and they had their own deception. And Pharaoh represents the world. He represents the world system. In a sense, he represents the Antichrist that wants to hold everyone in captivity. You see, the Antichrist has a spirit that 
holds people in captivity by the spirit of fear, inducing fear upon them. And I want to tell you that throughout this week, the overarching theme was, as I believe I already mentioned, fear. Captivity through fear. And how God is calling his people in this hour to rise up and be the opposite. To be filled with boldness and fearlessness. To not love our lives unto the death. Because we have such an identity in him that it takes away all fear. I'm talking about an identity in that wonderful love relationship we have with Christ. Where it says in the word of God that perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment or has uptightness. When you have an anxiousness, when you have an uptightness, it's because you're grasping after something that you want immediately that you feel you might not get or and you're fearful about it. It's a consciousness of loss. But the opposite of that consciousness of loss that causes uptightness is an identity in God that he's in control even if you're in the greatest contradictions that you can trust him that out of it there will come a time when he will take you through that period of suffering and pain and you will have a powerful resurrection experience that far makes up for your experience of temporal loss. Yes, the world system also provides the supernatural spirituality and support and deceptive rationalizations of rebellion in the flesh and in pride against God, which is represented in the supernatural ability of these musicians to create also what Moses created. But God revealed that he has ultimate authority over all supernatural power that is deceptive and is used by Satan. And the fact that this rod swallowed up those snakes. God will reveal the lying wonders of the enemy in the last days to be corrupt. He will expose the corruption in his appointed time, and when it is exposed, that light will literally melt the foundation so that the whole system collapses. In 1 John chapter 2 that I received here, this is about walking in the truth. But it's more than just walking in the truth. It's about not loving the world. So in Exodus, I believe it was seven, was it? It's about Pharaoh representing the world. And in 1 John chapter 2, it says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. The battle as believers that we have in this hour is that we're in this world system that tries to get us in a world of busyness to survive 
and lies to us. Oh, we're not going to survive if we don't do this and we don't do that and we don't do this. we got to be doing all these things or we're not going to have what God wants. And so we give up our prayer time for all the busyness of trying to make money. Or we get lured into the gods of amusement and we spend all our time watching sports and all of these other things that stumble so many people into the pleasures of this life so that they do not spend their time seeking God. They spend more time and energy on those things than they do in a relationship with God. I'm not saying that it's, or trying to be legalistic and, and put you under bondage that you can't watch sports. But how many times I see pastors that get up and talk about sports. Oh, the hockey team. Oh, this or oh, that. That I've seen that are Pentecostals, that are Charismatics, and they don't realize they're stumbling God's people and encourage them in a direction that is not godly. This is not what Wesley and other great men of God, they were totally against sports to the point that they never allowed their children to have anything to do with them. But look at nowadays. Oh, it's just all so acceptable. You can just waste your time when the Word of God says we're to redeem the time because the days are evil. doesn't mean that maybe you can't set aside a little bit of time to relax through some kind of game or something that you find relaxation through. I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm bringing a balance here that doesn't go to the right hand or to the left, but that calls his people into the challenge and encourages them to come out of the things that are hardening their heart and making them insensitive and insular so that they do not have tears for the lost. They do not have compassion for their fellow brothers and sisters. They have a denominative mindset, a cliquish mindset. Everyone after the church service is all in their own little groups. And then the ones that maybe aren't so attractive feel rejected because no one wants to talk to them. How many times I have seen these things where people do not feel loved that maybe tend to be not looked up to so highly because they're poor or whatever else or because they don't have some great talent like someone else does. The Word of God says plainly that we are not to be judges in our heart as to whether a permanent person has a beautiful garment or just comes in like a tramp. Oh, we're going to put the person with a beautiful garment. We're going to talk to them after. We're going to have our little group of talking with them. And we're not even going to look at this person that came in dressed like a trap. Oh, we hope he doesn't come back. That's what we're saying in our heart. We have become the judges of people according to outward appearance. And that is a denominative, cliquish, worldly mindset. And God calls us not to be like that to be those that love those that feel rejected, that feel diminished. In fact, if the body of Christ would obey God and, and if leadership would facilitate each member of the body functioning in the gifts of the Spirit, then God says in his word that he pours more abundant honor on the part that lacks so that there should be no schism in the body. What causes schism, according to Proverbs, is pride. Contention comes by pride. So God humbles those that tend to be looked up to by giving a more powerful gift unto some insignificant member 
and may not be so attractive. But if they're not facilitated and encouraged to share and have the total freedom to share in the meeting, equally with those that tend to be looked up to, then that can't happen. You see, God wants to bring down pride. He wants to bring down the mountains and raise up the valleys so that we pour the healing balm of God's love into those that need encouragement, that need strengthening. Oh, how we need to learn to wash one another's feet spiritually and even literally. It's a tremendously good practice. Dearly church practices. To humble ourselves before my brother and sister, maybe the one I find difficult to love, and to tell them, I receive you as Christ received me as a sinner, and I repent that I have this attitude towards you. Please forgive me. And share your faults, even if they're more at fault for the way they've hurt you. This is love. This is what facilitates coming into the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God. And if we are not willing to humble ourselves before God and before one another, we're playing a facade. True revival involves a powerful baptism of his love because it first involves a purging of the loves of the world out of our heart that are robbing us from the love of God. I don't have to go on and share anything else from these two chapters. I could be talking for hours if I don't watch myself. I'm going on to Tuesday. Deuteronomy 15 and 1 Samuel 7. In both of these chapters, you have people that are enslaved. One to their master and the other to the Philistines. I'm trying to remember what it's about too because, you know. In both chapters, there is a choice to hold people in bondage through fear or to free them. What frees them is the choice to deny self-seeking interest over the better good of the slave. I remember that. That's about the year of release, where every seven years they had to release their slaves. But if their slave fell in love with their master, then they could say, I love my master, I love my Lord, I will not go free. And what is explained in that chapter is there's an exhortation for those that are in authority to treat those slaves with a right heart, to fear God, to treat them with reverence, not to treat them like some evil taskmaster like Pharaoh's people did over the children of Israel. And then they're going to say, I love my master, I love my Lord, I will not go free. Because they're going to see the love of God in you. And so they're not going to be hurt sheep that leave your congregation because they were not loved, because there was not sensitivity to the least in our midst. God then revealed his power over the enemy. Now, I want to just try to get my memory on what this other chapter was on. It was the chapter that was on the... um, year of release, which is Deuteronomy, and then 1 Samuel. 
7. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtoreth. I remember what it is now. What is happening in this chapter is before this chapter, before chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, the children of Israel had fallen into great apostasy and rebellion against God. And the sons of Eli were committing immoral acts with women and demanding that people give them of the sacrifice against what they should be doing according to the law. And God's wrath was so kindled against these two sons of Eli that they were destroyed in a battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines took captive the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, as the Ark of the Covenant went among the Philistines, it brought terrible judgments so that they had it go back on the ox cart, as you're aware, most of you. And so then, in 1 Samuel 7, It says, then the children of Israel did put away Balaam. And they, after this, really began to repent. And they put away Balaam and Ashtoreth and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah. This is after they have the ark back. And I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they were seeking God for quite a few years here before this happened, actually, after the ark came back. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against you, Yahweh. We have sinned. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when Israel, when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines because they'd already experienced such a terrible defeat. And because they had such a consciousness of sin in their lives, there was a tendency to have fear. You know that old hymn that says, He breaks the power of canceled sin, he sets the prisoner free. Yes, often, even though we've repented of our sins, there's that consciousness there that causes a fear. And God wants to break that consciousness of our past failures once we've repented so that we can be without fear before the enemy. They were afraid of the Philistines. But in their weakness, they brought their fear before God. They didn't say, we're not fearful. They said, Samuel, pray for us. We're fearful. They admitted their weakness. They didn't put on a facade. We're so bold. They admitted their weakness. They brought it like the hymn that we sung, tossed with fear within and so on, bringing it to Christ. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And then what happens? And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines. They knew then that God was with them. They began to be encouraged and to have the boldness that God wanted them to come into. And sometimes God will bring encouragement into our lives to confirm he is with us, to break that power of canceled sin that sets the prisoners free, the enemy that condemns us even though we have been forgiven. 
Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. May we know that blessedness of assurance in our lives, of the forgiveness of God, of his acceptance of us. He knows when our heart is truly repentant. He's not going to allow us to live in our past failures. We're to forget those things that are behind and to press towards the mark of the prize of the calling of God in Jesus Christ. You go on to Wednesday. And in Wednesday, we have purging impurity individually and corporately from the body of Christ. And I don't think I'm going to share much on this because Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And when he reigned, my, did he ever purge Israel of idols. He burned the idols. He made people drink the dust of it, I think, as well, like Moses did with the, the uh, ground the idols to powder. And he was just zealous against all this impurity that was in Israel of idolatry. He was unsparing of it. And then they found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And look at his attitude. When he hears the word of God, what is, he sought for a prophet to tell them after he found this book. And this is what the, I believe the prophet says. Because thine heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God when thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes, and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith Yahweh, Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place. And upon the inhabitants of the same, so they brought the king word again. For that was the word of the prophet. Once he heard the word of God, he humbled himself with fasting and prayer, with true repentance. May we have ears to hear in this hour. May we not be hardened so in our hearts that we do not humble ourselves when God is speaking to us to come to a place of humbling ourselves and to turn from our wicked ways. Because that is what he is saying by his spirit. Because he wants us to come into this place of fearlessness and of authority and power in the body of Christ to conquer the works of darkness in these last days, to conquer our nation with the gospel in these last days. And so we read also in this chapter about purity in the first, or in this particular day, it was this is the second chapter I got that day, and it's on purity again. And so it says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, and not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. And I just want to touch on these things I received, and I received more as I continue to meditate, I believe. I, I won't go into all of that for time. I want to get to the next day, Thursday. The common theme in these chapters is on love that swallows up fear out of the fear of God, which births reception and conception of the love of God. 
And I did, in my last message, actually get into this particular aspect of things quite a bit. And so we have in Psalms 112, Praise ye the Lord, blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. What brings blessing in our lives is the genuine fear of God. I'm talking about spiritual blessing. Yes, there may be material blessing that can be an offshoot of that. That's not the blessedness God's talking about. He's talking about being blessed in a rich relationship with God so that you are triumphant, so that you are fearless, so that you see God working in your lives, everything together for your good, because you love God, as the Word of God says. Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he see his desire upon his enemies. He hath dispersed, he hath given to the poor. His righteousness endureth forever. His horn shall be exalted Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. And we had Titus and other chapters here, and I don't have time to go into all of this. First John 4, I, I did cast lots on, and, and again, it was on fear. It says here in green, He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar, for he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this is his commandment. And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. We are commanded to love one another. Now, when someone offends us, it may be hard to love them, especially immediately after. But you have to just recognize how great God's mercy has been to you. Then when you see how great his mercy to, is to you, it is easy to show mercy then to them. Even though God may say to you, does say if a brother offends you, go and tell him his fault. I think alone. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have an unforgiving attitude if he doesn't. We have a motive that says, I choose to forgive him, but we also want to have a motive of love that he truly, truly himself is not held in bondage to sin by a deception because we fail to point it out to him. And I am concerned about someone that did offend me a lot and I haven't even got back to him on this matter, but I know I've forgiven him. Well, I'm just praying about it. God will have his timing on that trying to serve the Lord, and sometimes maybe there is a situation where it isn't necessarily the way things work out, but I'm not going to get into that. I've had a lot of enemy attack me quite a bit. Oh boy, I'll tell you. Unexpected people, people that have been my friends, suddenly they, not a whole bunch, just one person. And then someone else I don't even know starts condemning me, and you know, I'm getting used to it. <laughs> Love covers a multitude of sins. I'm not going to dwell on these things. I know they're the attacks of the enemy. 
Sometimes you have to cut someone off because they refuse to repent. You know, if someone's on my Facebook page and they're still sticking up things that are offensive, after I've confronted them, I cut them off. You're in God's hands. God's going to deal with them. I'll tell you. They don't repent. You treat God's children like that, you watch what happens. You'll be in trouble. Not because I wished it on someone, but because that's the way it works. Why would you do that? Why would you do that to someone? Hurt them. When they're your brother, and they haven't done anything to you? I don't understand that. Jealousy, I don't know what it is. Here we go, we're in Friday. John 10 in Galatians 3. Now, I don't even point out the theme in this chapter. Maybe, um, oh, I know what it is. It's on hearing the voice of God, even though I didn't write anything on the theme. It's about John 10. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber, but he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name. He knows them personally and intimately, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of a stranger. God is pointing out the difference between his sheep and those that are not his sheep. His sheep know his voice. They don't follow the voice of a stranger. And there are many people nowadays that are entering into the body of Christ that have seemingly powerful ministries. And yet, there's always a remnant that knows when there's something wrong. There's something wrong about this person. Maybe this person is all into holy laughter and they never know humility. Maybe they're into all kinds of crazy things, but they don't know the fear of God, and it's something they're bringing along that takes away from reverence and from the fear of God. There's a balance. There's great joy and there's holy laughter for sure that God causes, but there's also great humility. Great humi We need to know what it is to have a broken and a contrite heart before God as well, to have soft ground in which the rain can be absorbed of his spirit. Both things are very important. We go on here. And the other chapter I got is on hearing the spirit too that day. And this is what it says. Received ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? word faith is the word pistis in the Greek, which means moral persuasion in who God is, basically. It's a moral persuasion in who God is that is not merely intellectual. It is a moral persuasion of your inner being, of your soul, of your spirit, that causes your soul and spirit to be not in a state of hardness like a fist, 
but in a state of surrender and openness, like an open hand trusting God in which the Spirit of God can come and dwell and abide, so that that hand does not close back into that state of hardness. Because you've learned the secret of the fear of God, of abiding in him, which is out of receiving God's love, perceiving it first, rightly perceiving it in its holiness or its purity, and thereby able to receive it in the greatness of its mercy and grace. For if you don't know the severity of God's holiness in your own life and his love for you to keep you pure and receive that and say, Lord, I receive your chastisement, like the slave that says, I love my master, I love my Lord. Yes, you've been hard on me at times, but you've balanced that hardness with the fact that you've shown you're doing it because you love me. And yes, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And a true shepherd has the balance of not being so authoritarian, like I've seen some be in the past in certain churches I've been to, that they beat the sheep and hurt the sheep, and on the other hand, having great humility. They show the balance of authority with humility, and they show that they love the sheep. And so there is this hearing of faith. As I said, faith works by love. And as I said in my last message, there's first the fear of God that's the catalyst that causes us to love God because it is the turning of the heart to choose to see God first in the purity of his love and to receive his severity against sin in our own lives and in this world and acknowledge that it is good, that it is beautiful. It is the very source of beauty for beauty comes out of holiness and creativity without corruption comes out of holiness. And so we receive that love, even if it means chastisement in our own lives or that we must come before God like Abel with an animal sacrifice, knowing our undoneness apart from his mercy. But out of that, receiving comes, or the perceiving first, and then the receiving, and then the conceiving of love back to God, which is also the conceiving of faith. For when we perceive the love of God, then there can be more persuasion in who God is that can endure through the trial because it is not wrongly perceiving God as not loving us, but can trust that he has their best interest in mind, and therefore we can persevere through the trial. Even Job had times, and Jeremiah had times when they wished they weren't alive because the enemy was so condemning them, and they were condemning themselves before God, and not seeing that God was ultimately good in the fullness of the way God wanted them to. But he brought them into that place of saying, though ye slay me, yet will I trust you. And so the hearing of faith relates to John 10, of a sheep knowing his voice. Because the hearing of faith also works miracles. It says that later on. He therefore that ministereth the Spirit to you and worketh miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law, by us trusting in our own self-sufficiency that we are so righteous and that we can bring all these performances of before God and that's going to make his righteousness? No, it's by moral persuasion. 
and the fact that God is so good, that God will be faithful to glorify his name because we know in our heart of hearts that we are not in a place of condemnation where the enemy is condemning our heart and we are condemning our heart because we're conscious too much of our own weaknesses and not enough of how great God's mercy is and his love to forgive us and that he has forgiven us. You just feel, how could God use someone that's so wretched like me, that's committed so many sins, and the Lord is saying, don't look back on what you've repented of. Have this moral persuasion in who I am. The hearing of faith. Begin to hear him. Begin to know that he speaks to you. Don't let the enemy condemn you and say, I never hear God's voice. Have a faith in him even if you don't hear him that he will have his times of speaking to you, and then he will speak more and more to you as you obey him, out of faith, out of a moral persuasion of love in him, not out of some performance that you must do to gain merit with him. And then we have Saturday, which is today. And the common theme between these two chapters is victory over the captivity of the fear of death and of death itself. Through Jesus Christ. And so we have Judges chapter 5. And it says here in Judges, this is the, the, the account of Deborah having victory over the enemy. We know, many of us, the story of Deborah, a prophetess, a woman very close to God that, was, that did, led the children of Israel against a very powerful army, way more powerful than Israel. Israel didn't even have hardly any weapons. And they're coming against this vast, powerful army because they, they sought the Lord, and Deborah encouraged them, don't be fearful. You can come against this even though there's overwhelming odds against you. And we read this. They chose new gods, then was war in the gates. Was there a shield or spear seen among 40,000 in Israel? No. My heart is toward the governors of Israel that offered themselves willingly among the people. They were willing to lay down their lives and come against this army. They were the ones that made the decision to bring Israel out against this overwhelming odds of this enemy that was oppressing them terribly. They were shooting arrows at them in the pathways when they went to get water and many of them were dying. There was other oppressive things happening. It says here, they that are delivered from the noise of the archers in the places of the drawing of water, there shall they rehearse the righteous acts of the Lord later on after they won. They were in liberty. They didn't have to worry about arrows flying and killing them while they're going to get their water. Lord, then shall the people of the Lord go down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, utter a song. Arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive, thou son of Abinoam. Captivity was led captive. The captivity of fear that Israel was in 
was brought into captivity so that they came and they arose with authority and power against the enemy, even though they had hardly any weapons and hardly any people against this overwhelming army. They experienced the power of God. Now in Matthew 28, it's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here, this deliverance also has parallels with that resurrection because in this deliverance, the earth shook. There was great thunderings that happened. The earth shook so that this river that destroyed the armies as they crossed it became a great raging torrent and the thunder and the lightning and they were discomfited and split up. and Many of them drowned in this river as they crossed it to attack Israel. It says here of another battle, maybe the same one as described in Psalm 68. It says this, Why leap ye, ye high hills? This is the hill which the Lord desireth to dwell in. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. Yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. We know this is quoted in Ephesians. This is what God is calling his people to in this hour to come out of their captivity. And part of the captivity is that we are not allowing the fullness of the headship of Christ to inhabit our local assemblies. I've written a book called God, Headship, and Body Invasion, which you can purchase on Amazon. It's all about what you can do in your local assembly so that you do not limit the fullness of Christ to dwell in your assembly. It says in the Word of God, We are to give more abundant honor to the part that lacks. I mentioned that earlier. He wants his people to come into a full new order in this last hour that does not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ in your local assembly or in your life personally where you love the world and you allow your heart to be hard and you're not in a first love relationship with Christ. He wants us to know the blessing of the fullness of his presence in our lives that swallows up all fear because his presence is filled with the revelation of God's love and of his truth that sets the captives free. And in Matthew 28, we do see a powerful account of the angel of the Lord coming down. And I don't have it here in front of me at the moment, although it is on my scripture uh, thing that I have here. It's probably right there. Whoops, wrong thing I brought up. Uh, right there. Well, where? that's these verses here. It's not Matthew. It's Ephesians. But in Matthew, I don't even need to go to it. Uh, you have the angel of the Lord coming down and the keepers quaking. And there's an earthquake like there is in the account of Deborah, like there is in this account 
in uh, Psalms here that I have in captivity being led captivity. Why leap ye ye, ye high hills? Yeah, and I read this. And then we have in Ephesians. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. He led captivity captive in his resurrection and gave gifts to men. And those gifts are according to whatever he's called us to be. And we will experience the ascending and descending in our own lives. The flame that goes up and down in those beasts speaks of the ascending and the descending of the presence of God, us knowing the place, the secret place of the Most High, of stillness before God, of great humility before God in our consciousness, and out of that coming the ascending of triumph and praise and resurrection, the up and down, up and down, the condescension of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and captivity being led captive. And those beasts were so attuned to the Spirit of God to go totally at his bidding that I spoke on last week. So we have other descriptions of this great victory of Deborah. And I also have of Matthew here and of the great earthquake. Of the door being rolled back. We get the message that God is saying to the body of Christ in this hour. He wants us to know the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, even the power that raised Christ from the dead, the power that swallows up all fear and causes us to walk in high, the high places, in the heavenly places with Christ, where there is victory and where we speak words out of the Spirit of God that are coming out of the utterance of the Spirit of God and his authority because we've learned the place of abiding in his love. We've learned the place, the secret place of the Most High. God is calling us as his people in this hour to be those that know their God and are strong and can do exploits. He's calling us to become local assemblies that break the power of darkness over our communities so that multitudes come into the kingdom of God as happened in the Welsh revival, except this time there will be a new order that does not allow the dissipation by people getting in positions of authority and wanting to control things and limit the Spirit of God. In this hour, God is calling for a new order that does not allow that because he's calling for an order that breaks the denominative mindset of hardness and of clickishness causes us to facilitate the valleys being raised and the mountains being brought down and each member functioning in the body and moving and coming into a love relationship with Christ where we're more conscious of Christ in our midst than of any person. This is the message. He's calling us to arise, to cast off the captivity of fear and come into his authority by coming into the place that facilitates his authority in our lives, both individually and corporately. 
So thank you for listening to this message. I also have another book that you can get on the internet, as I told you, on the afterlife, called Afterlife, Incredible Irrefutable. And it's a really good book. I encourage you to purchase it and read it on your phone. It's not boring. It's very interesting. And it's also very edifying. And it gives a lot of answers to the deception in this hour. So God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this message.